Okay. Well, before we begin, I just want to say what a nice spot I feel like I'm in right now because there's probably three shows in a row here that are audio blog format, and both this one and uh, and with the uh, Scooter Diaries, those audio blog formats have been augmented by special guests, so that's really wonderful. I mean, those of you who are in the crowd can see this already, so it's not a big... It's not a big surprise. So I think that's great. I also appreciate the fact that Scotty last night and Mark today were talking about the community. I want to do a little bit of that as well. So if we're good. Hello, I'm Greg. And I'm Nicole. Let's, let's have an inappropriate conversation about intersections in the neighborhood. <laughs> Okay. Um, this is this is a first. Yeah, Scott Scott the Seder made this look so natural three years ago, and I'm like <laughs> messing with my phone. Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm glad the jack is working. The headphones haven't worked for me in quite a while, so it's a delight. Um, I mentioned three years ago, and that's probably a good place to start. I don't think I'm a strange voice necessarily. Um, strange but not a stranger maybe from a Pride 48 perspective because three years ago in Las Vegas I was here first time ever and presented Walk the Earth. Walk the Earth 30 is the episode there. I put it out as a podcast in September of 2015. But this one's different because it's the inappropriate conversations format and I remember during some of the Q&A at the end of the Walk the Earth saying I don't know that I could do an inappropriate conversations by myself. I don't have to. (laughs) Yay. So uh, what an inappropriate conversations podcast is, for those who don't know, it's really what I did first. Eight years ago, I started with this format. I only added the other show to the RSS feed about five years ago because of an urgent need to, to move from church to church. I guess I would describe myself. I finally, after all these years, become comfortable describing myself as a Christian ally um, or an ally who's Christian. I don't think the order necessarily makes sense, but that's probably how most people know me. What Inappropriate Conversations did from the very beginning, though, was to say, hey, I've got a lot of people in my world who have inspired me, who've made me think, who maybe, if only to me, if not to others, have changed the game. And Different Drummer, the concept, is to me not just people who march to the beat of a different drummer, but the people who set that rhythm, who actually change the cadences, so to speak. And a lot of shows are built around the different drummer, and it kind of goes both ways. Sometimes I'll have a topic, and I'll spend some time finding an appropriate person to go with that topic but most of the time it's the other way around and this is one of those shows where the entire topic is built essentially around the different drummer Um, so that's kind of what makes inappropriate conversations an inappropriate conversation show and although all of you already know nicole i think this is a good place to talk about nicole's show oh well sure um i'm greetings from nowhere is my podcast and it's a podcast about you know, different cultural topics. Um, my friends TJ and Christina and I, we talk about our lives and news and pop culture and that sort of thing. 
Um, and what I like about Greg's podcast is that it touches on subjects that might not be super fun around the Thanksgiving table with the rest of your family. And uh, that's thereby the title. Um, I know around with my family, it can be challenging to talk about politics and religion. In fact, my Aunt Jerry will just shut that shit down um, <laughs> at the table. We're not allowed to talk about politics at the family table. Um, and I like uh, that, Greg, your podcast does that. You will talk about those um, challenging subjects, um, especially from a Christian perspective, because from our perspective, from a Christian perspective, they, they a lot of times we just don't do it. We just, especially if you're not towing the, the line um, on those subjects. If you are, you know, an LGBT ally, you can be a little solitary island at that Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, but I'm lucky that I have a really good atheist friend as one of my best friends, you know, and a somewhat pagan friend as one of my best friends, you know. So I get a lot of diversity in my life, um, different perspectives. And that's what I love about Greetings from Nowhere is we bring a lot of different perspectives to our podcast as well. My so. personal belief is that when people say we're not allowed to talk about this, that, or the other thing at the dinner table, what it is is a huge cop-out. It gives people the ability to say fairly outrageous and poorly thought-through ideas, and the second they're challenged or the second questions are asked, then it reverts very quickly to, well, we shouldn't be mixing politics and religion. And for us, at the dinner tables that we eat at when families get together, the religion's a given. So to me, I kind of force the issue and refuse to allow that cop-out. The about page on inappropriateconversations.org, that little, the little mini page that just says what's the show about is basically that, saying, hey, we're going to mix these things together. We're going to do it on purpose. But I wanted to start with a real personal dilemma. And I was, I was talking to DeBell yesterday at breakfast and I said, I'm going to have to go here because I honestly don't know that I can point to the moment that I felt like, okay, I'm an ally. And this is a bit of a, it's not a struggle for me. I'm very happy and comfortable where I am, but I don't have a great origin story. And what, what dawned on me as I was driving through states like... Origin story, like a superhero. Yeah. I don't, I don't have one of those. There's no, there's no Wolverine moment. I'm a mutant maybe, but I don't know how I got here. Um, but, you know, most, I think most people probably who are in the, the general umbrella of ally, I don't know if it's 51% or 81%, but most people got there because somebody that they already loved came out to them and the power of that love was stronger than all of their prejudices and the result of that ended up being an ally i don't have one of those um i i, I usually tell it this way that i may have members of my family who are gay they have not come out to themselves yet so they're not coming out to me so it's not that uh, certainly my immediate family brothers sisters parents there's nothing there's nothing there i'm I'm probably about as white bread as you can get. One of my groomsmen at my wedding 31 years ago um, was part of our good inner circle. I made sure that I had him because I needed somebody from my college group in there. And at the time, it would have been too politically incorrect for my female best friend to be on my side of the aisle. So we cho I chose Warren to be the representative of our entire group. But it was only about three or four years ago that I started scratching my head and said, you know what? I wonder if Warren was gay. And our friend Ann had a really simple three-letter answer for that. Duh. <laughs> but I didn't know. And so here's, here's the reason I struggle. For one thing, I had not earned the confirmation of that fact. So that's on me. 
you know, for one. But for another, I just kind of cruised through 50 plus years of life without becoming an ally. I just <laughs> guess I always was one. I, I don't know. What's your story? But I was, yeah, no, I was a real slow burn too. I just, um, I tell people, because I do have Christian friends who are like, why do you go to pride parades? Why are you going to pride 48 or whatever? And I'm like, and I throw out a lot of Christianese. I hope it doesn't bother anyone, but I I'll say, you know, God put gay people in my life all the time. It's not my fault. <laughs> you, you know, it's like I went to the Evergreen State College because I'm a practical person and that was the affordable college for me. The Evergreen State College is one of the most liberal colleges in the United States of America. Do I have a greener in the house? Yes, yes. <laughs> Go gooey ducks. Um, absolutely. Um, and so I was, you know, in there with all the gay people and all the, you know, people of different ethnicities, whereas I'd grown up in Wenatchee, which is very pretty much Caucasian and Hispanic community, you know, so, and I was with all the charismatic Christian white people. That was my world. So when I went to the Evergreen State College, you know, I just met so many more different people. And, you know, I took the words of Jesus Christ to heart. Even though I was still stuck with theology like about hell and all that, I still believe when Jesus said, hey, you're supposed to love everybody, I was like, all right, that's the rule. You know, and I was a rule follower. So that's where I began to morph my beliefs is like, well, if I'm supposed to love everybody, that means everybody. There's no, you don't get to draw the line at certain people, you know, just because they're different and then I began to realize hey they're not different what is going on here you know and then I moved to you know Virginia and did some more school and then I moved to LA and I worked at Disney <laughs> so more gay people in my life hang on you so, encountered gay fellow employees while you're working at oh Disney? yes okay. oh yes yeah I guess that's another duh moment right? yeah definitely um, um and you know just the most beautiful people I I, who was I talking to yesterday that I told um, not only Anthony I was talking to yesterday but someone else I was talking to that Pride 48 is one of the places I feel I can be most myself you know you are just the most accepting people you are the, some of the most Christ-like people I know and so um, it's literally being around the gay community that has made me an ally. So that's on y'all. Um, so thank you for that. And so I don't. I also don't have like the moment or the person. Can we make that our new tagline? Pride forty eight, the most Christ like people around. I one hundred percent. I can get behind that. I I think there probably would need to be a vote. Really? But yeah. yeah. Probably would need to be a vote. Although we probably um, have a quorum, so you're halfway there. I would there, think right? so. While we're on on slogans, I, I thought of one when you said Jesus said love everybody, and it didn't like put any exclusionary he lines on it. And then what popped into my head immediately was Jesus doesn't gerrymander. Oh Ooh. no, he does see, not. Now here's the problem. I, I'm, Wait, I don't have I, a no, pen no, no, to write I'm going to walk down. away. I just have one thing to say. Something you said while I was sitting back there is you said you never thought of yourself as an ally. Uh, because there wasn't any moment or, or, or I guess what I thought the moment you said that is as long as you're not against you're automatically an ally it's that whole you've got to be taught to hate feeling mm. and you weren't against you weren't for or against it which made you just 
there, and that's okay. That is an ally. All right, I'm done. No, no, I'm sorry. If you are not out there advocating for LGBT rights, you are not an ally. You cannot just sit back and say, well, I don't have anything to do with them. They don't bother me. I don't care what they do. And you're letting persecution and, and, and rights be taken away. Well, that's, Then you're not an ally. That's my segue because I mentioned well, earlier... Ally straight woman. That <laughs> <laughs> I've been gaining up long before you came out. I think we all know there's that moment where somebody has to deal with the love they have for an individual and the fact that they now know that individual is gay and it doesn't always work that love wins in the hearts of all those people. And I think that intellectually how I decided that I needed to be outspoken and maybe in the minds of some family members very outspoken was that I just kind of, there. there's three things that I've just learned in the last year or so that if these three things work together, you can sell me swampland, that I can be manipulated. One of them is that I don't like seeing people harmed. It bothers me. I have a hard time not speaking about it, not reacting to it, especially when that harm comes from a place of uh, segregation, discrimination, hypocrisy. Then the second thing is, if I do dive into that and challenge it and find out that the harm is coming from one of my tribes, well, then that's just double bad, right? Because I don't believe that any of us have a single group that we're associated with. Most of our Venn diagrams are flowery and beautiful, that there's so many connecting points, so many interconnections, our work relationships, our home relationships, all that. And so when I see that this harm is being done, and it's being done by people who use the same capital C Christian to describe themselves as me, that's double bad. And then the killer, the third is when I do the analysis and realize that ultimately the place where there's going to be a demise is back to the people who are doing the harm. That in some ways, speaking out and challenging people and being aggressive toward them is a generosity to them to say, look at what's happening to your churches. Look at what's happening to your voice. Look at what is happening to your ministry, especially in the Trump era. You are becoming lesser because you chose to hate. So they're doing harm at the beginning to other people that I care about, but they're also slitting their own throat at the same time. And if there's a way to stop that, I don't think I can be silent. Mm -hmm. Or at least I've failed so far. Yeah. So. Agreed. But from a Pride 48 perspective, there's been this little wrestling match we've heard throughout the weekend. Those of us have been tuned into all the shows. One is the Chosen Family camp, and the other is the, the, uh, the Media Network camp. And I'm going to bring this back to our original topic, which intersections in the neighborhood, and say these things have to go together. That we could be a chosen family of people who went to New Orleans and just wanted to hang out on Bourbon Street. And if there's no media network, then a big piece is missing because the, the world, or at very least the rest of our world, doesn't know that happened. The chat room wouldn't be here. The chat room wouldn't be here. And we could be a media network. We could be a media network selling Ginsu knives and stuff like that. But um, hard to imagine that that's a good family. So it's kind of both of them together. And I'm taking notes. Any other ideas? <laughs> Just keep going. We got 45 minutes. Because um, uh, I think from Nicole's perspective, and I'm going to let her chime in, We've got our own set of connections and intersections between the two of us. There are things we've got beyond just Pride 48 that are in common, but actually those things we have that are in common are what drew us 
together to Pride 48. Right, right. It was really, I mean, I have very few friends um, like Greg, who's a really solid Christian, um, is solid in his faith, and who support, who are allies in the LGBT community. Um, and that's just gold to me. And, uh, and very meaningful, very few brothers in Christ. Um, I have a lot of female sisters in Christ who are this way, but very few brothers in Christ. So that's deeply meaningful to me in so many ways. That's a huge intersection. And just, yeah, friendship that way, podcasters that way, mm-hmm. all friendship, these intersections. Friendship between genders is a big one for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it really kind of applies in a group where gender doesn't mean the same limited two choices that the rest of the world think it means anyway. Um, but one of the first times I reached out to uh, Nicole was to say, I'm looking for a poem. I've written a few on my own to cover the politics and the religion. I don't have one for friendship. I need one for friendship. And if you go to soundcloud.com, um, there's an IC underscore Greg SoundCloud link. I'm not just Twitter that way and um, Facebook page for inappropriate conversations. But on SoundCloud, the joining is one of the different sound files that I put up there. It's not full-length shows. But I didn't need a full-length show for a three-minute poem. And that was kind of one of the first real connection, one of the first real shared collaborations between the two of us. So we've got these intersections. But that is not what I wanted to talk about in the sense of intersections. I wanted to kind of, for the first time ever, talk about intersectionality. And this is an area where I obviously have no wisdom and no experience and, and not much expertise. But, you know, to me, the first year of Inappropriate Conversations, a friend of my wife's, said, if you want to have inappropriate conversations as a podcast theme, that's great. But the best way to have an inappropriate conversation these days is to have it about race. And I, of course, can't really speak intelligently to race. It's not who I am. But this man can. This is Francois Clemens. And if you don't recognize him in some of his university attire from Middlebury College in Vermont, you might recognize him from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as Officer Clemens. Mm-hmm. But I can't do the different drummer with just one of these two men because the story it's is both. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you i've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you so let's make the most of this beautiful day since we're together we might as well say would you be mine could you be mine won't you be my neighbor won't you please won't you please please won't you be my neighbor Neighbors or people. Who By so, the way, I did check with my niece. Texted her last night, and she did watch Mr. Robert, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhoods. She's a millennial, so they were still watching it. <laughs> so I've had dual different drummers before. It's really hard to name the Indigo Girls as a different drummer, yeah, you know, without naming both of the Indigo Girls at the same time. Um, there's an episode where I named uh, Oswald Chambers and really had to name his wife Gertrude with them because we wouldn't have had any of his writings if it hadn't been for her work both during his life and after his death, uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen in filmmaking. But this is really unique in the sense that uh, aside from being on a TV show together, this connection is not like husband and wife or like you know rock band or something like that. 
these are two very very different men but it seemed like the best way for me to talk about what i wanted to do was sort of to say well how many of us remember mr rogers neighborhood Mm -hmm. i mean bet all of us at some point encountered an episode he's such a part of our culture that this new documentary that came out this year won't you be my neighbor and a fiction biopic coming out next year starring tom hanks at least that's the plan um doesn't really have to build an audience the audience is kind of built in there's a lot of things that we assume we knew but well there's a lot of things that i learned you know from that documentary alone that surprised me so what's your experience with mr rogers neighborhood oh my gosh so i my i really just have watercolor memories of mr rogers neighborhood i think mom says i watched him a lot and i don't remember a lot of it but like if i see him feeding the fish like that's a sh- like i have this emotional reaction of happiness to that or if i uh, see the trolley going into make believe land i like have really strong reactions to that so i think i must have watched it a lot in like preschool age like really young so i have very warm feelings about mr rogers even though i don't remember specific episodes and that sort of thing so yeah super young watching going on I would have to describe myself as a lukewarm fan. I mean, even as a little kid, I can remember occasions, and of course memory is imperfect, right? But I can remember occasions where the choice of what to view was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or the Waltons. And Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood won almost every time when that was, when that was the case. But Mr., you know, Fred Rogers never stood a chance for me against Star Trek or Johnny Quest. I mean, if that was, if those were the stakes, and for people who've listened pretty regularly to Inappropriate Conversations this year, you know already that from a different drummer perspective, I've been on this huge nostalgia kick. And I don't really know why. It wasn't planned. I'm in the unplanned part. Uh, eight years ago, I wrote out 100 possible different drummers and you know, almost 200 show ideas. And you know, I've used up everything that I'm going to do. I'm, I'm in the range where it's all, it's all new, it's all organic. But here lately, I've, I've named Animal from The Muppet Show as a different drummer, the guy who wrote the music for Johnny Quest. I mean, I've just been living in the past a little bit. But for me, Fred Rogers has, has only been kind of a stipulated part of that past, you know, and was there. And if it was on, I watched it. And if it wasn't, I didn't, didn't worry about it. I probably watched Gilligan's Island's episodes 20 times and never saw a single rerun of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You know, make from that what you will. But uh, to me, I'm going to have Nicole share something here in just a minute. It's a blurb from Amazon.com about a book written a couple years ago. And then I want to see if there's anybody who's got any feedback. We're going to talk a little bit about the movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, anybody who's seen it. I jumped in online last night, spent an hour or two with Taylor Taffy and Rodan in the chat room and asked them had they gotten around to seeing the movie yet, which I know is on Taylor and Taffy's list, but they hadn't. Because one of my worries was that I was going to come here to Vegas with a beads swag plan and be like the 14th show that did beads. So that didn't happen. So that's good. And I was also afraid I might have been the third show that was doing something related to Mr. Rogers. That didn't happen. You know, so so that's good. But um, so we'll kind of throw that open. But I was really surprised when I went out and did a little bit of research because some of the things, because I was only a casual listener, I just didn't know. I didn't really know how willful and intentional Fred Rogers was about bringing his Christian worldview without branding it as Christian and bringing his politics of pacifism in and really being influential. When you think about it, 
he has a show where he feeds the goldfish. Now, if we did a children's show today, even a PBS children's show today, where in the prep work for that recording, a fish was dead, what do you think the odds are that the producers would come in, sweep the dead fish away, throw it in the trash, pretend it never happened? But in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, he said, okay, this is an opportunity for us to talk about death. Let's do a show about death. You know. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good idea for a kid's show. So I think that it's fair to say that Rogers was more intentional than we give him credit for. And this uh, blurb for a book on Amazon.com called Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers from Michael Long probably does a pretty good job of making the argument better than I could. Yeah, Michael Long says, Fred Rogers was one of the most radical pacifists of contemporary history. We do not usually think of him as radical, partly because he wore colorful soft sweaters made by his mother. Nor do we usually imagine him as a pacifist. That adjective seems way too political to describe the host of a children's program known for its focus on feelings. We have restricted Fred Rogers to the realm of entertainment, children, and feelings, and we've ripped him out of his political and religious context. Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, and although he rarely shared his religious convictions on his program, he fervently believed in a God who accepts us as we are and who desires a world marked by peace and wholeness. With this progressive spirituality as his inspiration, Rogers used his children's program as a platform for sharing countercultural beliefs about caring nonviolently for one another, animals, and the earth. To critics who dared called him namby-pamby, Rogers said, only people who take the time to see our work can begin to understand the depth of it. This is the invitation of Peaceful Neighbor, to see and understand Rogers' convictions and their expression through his program. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, it turns out, is far from sappy, sentimental, and shallow. It's a sharp political response to a civil and political society poised to kill. So has anybody seen the movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Well, you have a few folks. Comments are certainly welcome. We'll keep an eye on the chat room off to the left as well. I saw it twice. Uh, the main reason I went to see it the first time was because my pastor wouldn't stop talking about it. <laughs> he did a four or five uh, week run in a sermon series where as soon as the scripture reading was done, instead of you know some other doxology type music, the music leader would play the theme from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and Joel would come up to the front, sit down, take off his dress shoes, put on the Mr. Rogers' uh-huh. deck shoe. Uh, he put a pullover cardigan because he didn't have the, uh, the ability or the time to buy the right front-to-bottom zip-up cardigan, but literally got into costume and then tried to put what he described as the, uh, the patron saint of neighborliness into context. And it occurred to me that I was just a little too casual, and all of my knowledge of Fred Rogers was in that namby-pamby category, and maybe I hadn't taken the man seriously enough. And then I wanted to watch it again because our trip to uh, New Orleans for Pride 48 this year began in uh, Vermont. So we live in Ohio and decided to take an extended vacation, and that vacation led here, but it also started with sort of a very quiet, just my wife and I, you know, Uh, New England kind of a tour and when I realized that we were going to be spending one week up in that little corner of Vermont and that um, Francois Clemens was is still sort of a retired professor in good standing at Middlebury College 
that it just made sense to do a little bit of a pilgrimage and to at least have wheels on the ground in that in that place because to me the intersectionality really hits home when it comes to images like this and let me go back to namby pamby i'm holding up the picture of one of the two times the first of the two nope the second of the two two. where um francois clemens and um Fred Rogers shared a foot washing with each other in one of those small sort of discover tubs, the little the little, little kitty pool, the kind of pool that Gerard would probably just be all over. Right. You know, and um, the first time he did it and the documentary does a great job covering this. He did it because there was enough late 60s unrest with and hold on, let me set the stage a little differently. I'm going to tell you it's the late 60s, but I don't think you have to imagine this is long ago. You could imagine this as Barbecue Becky, you know, from just this year, or some of the, uh, the pool house patties. You know, we are still living in a world where if black people want to go swimming in the same public swimming pool with white people, some people have a problem with it. You know, calling the police because this black family is at the pool and one of them is wearing their socks and their socks got wet and that's unacceptable. And, you know, it's still going on. Well, back then it was maybe arguably worse. Because there was a uh, hotel, I believe it was, where the owner of the hotel didn't want black people in the swimming pool and was pouring bleach and other chemicals in the water, basically saying, if you guys are going to swim in my pool, then nobody can swim in my pool. I'm going to make it toxic. I'm going to make it unthinkable. What Rogers chose to do to deal with that was to invite Officer Clemens in an episode to cool off his feet on a hot summer day because that's what Fred was doing and the pool was there and the hose was there and you might as well join me. And Officer Clemens says, well, I can't do that. I don't have a towel. And Fred says, I got, I got my towel. Yep, you can just share my towel. And he, you know, at the point where they were done with their conversation, he took up the towel and he dried Officer Clemens' feet. You know, it wasn't even, here you go, here's a towel. It was here, let me dry your feet for you. You know, which in terms, if you're a Christian, if you're familiar, that looks very much like the Last Supper where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It is. You know, and it was a huge signal in the 60s, for sure, where you don't treat another human being as anything less than Christ would treat another human being. It is John 13, for anybody who would care to look at the passage that she's referring to. A couple walked the earth back. I I answered the question on walk the earth of whether Jesus should have washed the feet of Judas, which is what happens in that section. The the man who's going to betray him, the reason he's going to get killed on a cross, uh, is sitting there. And when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples before the Last Supper, he's washing all their feet, including Judas's feet. I can't reconcile that story with people who say, well, you're gay, so you can't have communion. Or your son was gay and married, therefore I can't officiate this funeral. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, Jesus washed the feet of his murderer, you know, so it's got to be okay. Fred said none of these things. He cited no Bible verses. He showed it. And near the end of uh, the run of the show, or at least near the end of Francois Clemens's run on the show, they repeated the scene together. Now, the reason I say that intersectionality matters here is because um, Francois Clemens is gay. This is not just about a black man on a TV show and a black man having a regular recurring role in a children's television show 
from 1968 to Lord knows when. I mean, it went on forever. Yeah. You know, so that's one piece of it. But when, you know, Nicole and I were talking, it's hard for us to speak with any authority here because we're kind of in a single lane. But intersectionality is the idea of being in more than one lane at the same time, dealing with the potential discrimination of being both black and gay, or being both disabled in some way and gay, or the trans community is a walking intersectionality experience. You know, So Clemens walked that walk. And my question as we get out of the different drummer segment here in a minute and actually start talking about intersections and, and not taking for granted how simple it all seems, is that I've got a few questions about how that was handled. And, you know, tremendous love and respect for, for this man because Francois Clemens made it look easy. We can all kind of go back now and say, why is this, why does Greg have questions? Why is Greg troubled by this story? Well, it's because Francois Clemens handled it so incredibly well. And I may be about to make an argument that maybe Fred Rogers would admit, if he were still with us, that he could have handled it better. Better. We will, we will see, because you know at the time, Fred Rogers wasn't willing or even able, probably, to deal with the challenge of having a gay character, a gay actor playing a character on TV, a black actor playing a recurring role in a children's television show on TV in 1968 through at least 73 would have been highly problematic. I kind of want to pick up with an article that was written. Um, I found it on hornet.com slash stories written by Matt Keeley. This was in December of last year, so fairly recent article. And he's citing some of the same book and letting Clemens speak for himself. And basically, it's talking about that moment when Fred Rogers realized that Francois Clemens could be outed. So here's a, a little bit of a reading. Frank, we've come to love you here in the neighborhood, Rogers said. You have talents and gifts that set you apart and above the crowd, and we want to ensure your place with us. Someone, we're not able to say who, has informed us that you were seen at the local gay bar downtown with a buddy from school. Now I want you to know, Frank, that if you're gay, it doesn't matter to me at all. Whatever you say and do is fine with me. But you're going to be on, but you're going to be on the show, and as an important member of the neighborhood, you can't be out as gay. People must not know. Many of the wrong people will get the worst idea, and we don't want them thinking and talking about you like that. If those people put up a fuss, then I couldn't have you on the program. It's not an issue for me. I don't think you're less of a person. I don't think you're immoral. Clemens was devastated and started to sorry, uncontrollably sob. Rogers came around the desk and cradled him, but when Clemens asked if that meant the end of their relationship... Uh, Roger said, now just wait a minute, young man. Who says that our relationship has to come to an end? You need to decide what it is you want in life, Frank. Talent can give you so much in this life, but that sexuality thing can take it all away, faster than you can ever imagine. You can have it all if you keep that part of it out of the limelight. Have you ever thought about getting married? People do make some compromises in life. Due to Roger's advice, he married a woman, Francois did, in 1968. But in 1974, Carol and Francois Clemens divorced. Though Carol and Francois got along well and loved each other, it was still difficult. But Clemens kept talking to Rogers and said, he's the one person I could talk to about being gay. It was through these discussions that Rogers realized he'd made a mistake. 
He later changed his advice, urging Clemens to find a gay man he was happy with. He also stopped asking Clemens to remain in the closet, though Rogers did reject Clemens' suggestion of having Officer Clemens come out on the show. So to me, that gives me a pretty good feel for um, the intersection we're dealing with, that sometimes this is a crossroads that's under construction, and sometimes there's one of those stoplights that feels like it will just never, ever, ever turn green. And uh, we know this part of the story because Clemens shared it, Right. Which is awesome. Right. But it's also a story that I think I find to be incredibly difficult to manage. So I want to give a lot of props to Francois Clemens for the work that he's done. I mean, in a different drummer segment, I've done very little biography here. Um, he's a Grammy Award winning singer, um, has won a Grammy Award with the Cleveland Orchestra and Opera performing Porgy and Bess in his role as Sport in Life. I'm so naive about this stuff that I, the song It Ain't Necessarily So. I thought it was a Peggy Lee number. It is to me, you know. But the lyrics are very different in the in the original Gershwin musical, and and that he's known for that. And he's still the kind of man that even to this day, as a retired professor, still will refer to current and former students at the university as his cosmic children, which I think is just awesome. But I've got some questions, and I'm going to ask those questions on the other side of the different drummer segment, because none of this makes me think less of Fred Rogers, but it certainly makes me wonder a few things. You're alive, it's such a happy feeling You're growing inside And when you wake up, ready to say I think I'll make a snappy new day It's such a good feeling A very good feeling The feeling you know that we're friends You know, you can always help to make each day a special day By just your being yourself you grow in your own way. Everyone does. That's one reason each one of us is different and special. And people can like us exactly as we are. So here's the dilemma, and I'm going to ask you first. Um, oh, great. Loving someone as they are. I mean, that's closing theme to our different drummer segment from the uh, soundtrack to the documentary. How do you reconcile that with asking someone to hide who they are? Right. And that's so, that's so hard. That's the hardest part of this whole thing. And, you know, that was for me personally that was my struggle as I slowly became you know a person who had to move from believing homosexuality was a sin to no it's not you know was um, that that change in belief and back in 1967 68 69 that was not the culture where that was really easy to do um, I think he did I think as a man, he did accept Francois Clemens as he was. But this is the same. This is even before what DJ Ron talked about. This is earlier than what happened in, in 1973. And to 
have it's almost like he was trying to protect him i'm not excusing it i think he gave him the wrong answer but maybe for the time period you know it was the only answer he knew how to give yeah i really wrestle with it because to me the the uh the forced marriage, the marriage that was never going to be the same kind of marriage maybe as mine, that always kind of that that's always been a sticking point for me. It's always been a problem. And I I tell people that you cannot be right with God if you cannot be real with God and you cannot be real with anybody if you can't be real with yourself. And if if the bargain that needed to be made back then at that time was, yeah, you've got to just kind of pretend you're like, you know, everyone down the road to be able to keep this position of influence, that one half of your intersectionality, the part in terms of changing our cultural perception of race, um, you know, had to come at such price. You know? Right, right. I, I thought about, too, would he have the influence he has today? Would he be who he is today if he hadn't made the decisions, if Francois hadn't made the decisions he made? Yeah. Um, would he have the career he had? if he had come out of the closet sooner. Um, I don't know. So Nicole and Christina were joking with me this week that um, I apparently do a lot more show prep than they do. That, um, <laughs> and uh, it, it absolutely, it absolutely depends on the topic, right? You know? She had homework. <laughs> It's not in our hotel room fun. at night where I'm I'm like relaxing. I've got the TV on HGTV. I'm like background noise while I fall asleep and she's just like typing and reading and I'm like <laughs> I'm like did he give you a homework breakdown? Yes. I prefer to think of it this way. I prefer to think of it as asking a friend for help. I loved it. I thought it was so fun. Yeah. So Nicole read the same passage that I read aloud. You know, not not aloud, obviously. But she picked out the words that I think really helped me get my sense of it. Is And when you underlined it on your copy, I saw it, and I saw it differently than what I did before. That instead of maybe Rogers just really being short-sighted and naive and making a mistake, that this this phrase of the wrong people, maybe the wrong people will get the worst idea, that Clemens seems to perceive Rogers as protecting him. And the way I kind of look at it now is maybe it was buying him some time. That at that point in our history, that the things that Clemens was pushing for couldn't be achieved just yet. I mean, I don't think we think less of Harvey Milk that Harvey Milk's achievements did not include gay marriage. That he had achievements that included people not being fired and arrested and imprisoned for doing their job. And at the time, that was the biggest problem. You know, and that if the only prize fight we got to see back then was Anita Bryant versus Harvey Milk and Harvey Milk won, then that's one of the best prize fights in history. But so it's it's too easy, I think, to look backward in time and say, well, those people back then should have had more wisdom because I don't think I had more wisdom three weeks ago. Right, right. Do you guys have what do you guys think after hearing this, this exchange between Clemens and um Rogers or do you guys have any thoughts is it the time period I noticed that in the chat room um Faye Driver was agreeing with me on that subject that it was a time in history may I just interrupt you one second sure. yes Cronehaven and B are getting ready to leave they've got a flight <gasps> to catch and I wanted everyone yes. just to be able to say bye-bye yes definitely 
Definitely. Crone, we love you. Bye, you guys. Oh, sweet darlings. Oh. Go hug on them, guys. That gets back into your family and community Absolutely. and all that. Absolutely. You got to, everybody's got to have a goodbye hug. We're having an intersection with the family and a podcast right now. Between the family and the broadcast. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I actually Christina. I actually have something to say about what you asked. Yeah. Um for me, listening to what you guys have said and giving the history and, and thinking about it, it's almost like he made two different decisions or gave two different types of advice because he spoke to him as, for me personally, so personal decision, I have, we are still friends. We, we are, are still fine. right. We are yeah. still okay. Everything is fine. I accept you and love you and everything as you are. But as a business decision, this is the advice I'm going to give you to be in business in this time and in this place. So I'm giving you business advice here, but I'm giving you personal decisions and advice here. And I don't know if it could be interpreted that way by everyone or even if Clemens interpreted it that way, but I'm wondering if in, in Roger's mind, it was a little bit like, I'm gonna give him, I'm gonna tell him personally, it's all good. But business-wise, here's what I know in order to navigate this business. Clemens sure. did say that being able to be on the show was currency that got him into public performing and touring, which got him into that Porgy and Bess, which got him into all that a lot of good things came from that. Right. So that's true. Yeah, I think what Christina said is right on the money. There was yes. at risk for there to be, uh, you know, the tarnishing of the show if this came out in that day and age. So... I think he was protecting the show. I think the the advice about getting marriage was was off base, and he, and he realized that his intentions were good. Um, but I, I mean, he was a sensitive guy. It is amazing how he took. You know, he really had a lot of uh, a lot of weight on his shoulders when it came to things like the Kennedy assassination or how yes. you know even the goldfish dying. You know, these kinds right. of things. He it must have been an enormous amount of weight, uh, and he handled it really well. Thanks, Tom. Yes. And in this case, uh, you may go on to that second washing of the feet and kind of what, you know, well, he was he was using that first foot washing to speak to the nation. Uh, uh, he was using the second foot washing probably also to speak to the nation, but also to speak to Francois very personally and very directly. So it was, it's really a good movie. I hope everybody can get, yes. can get yeah. to see it. Thanks. Yeah, I, and maybe we should rejoice a little bit that then it was a given if this is a gay actor on tv the sponsors are going to leave and now i don't think that's a given it may not be perfect but that's not a given that's not an assumption anymore brother c i guess we also can't forget the human condition we are incomplete we are we don't see the total the total picture and red was frail I mean, he was human. Right. And so, right. you know, he was doing his best. But, you know, it, sometimes you make the wrong decisions. Right, right. And as long as you are aware and, you know, willing to change and are willing to ask forgiveness, that's what our relationship with the divine is. Yeah. yeah. You know, I like him better that way, to be honest with you, that the Fred Rogers that I remember as a kid was not real in the same way that this Fred Rogers is real, you know? Anne. Hi. 
This just had me thinking about what you were talking about, the, you know, the turning point or when you um, became an advocate and about how um, I feel like I've, I've been an advocate for a, a very long time, for as long as you've known me and beyond. Longer, longer than me. And how many times I've helped someone hide who they are not because I personally thought of them as any less than who I am, but because I knew that that was what would keep them safe. And how many times I wanted to advocate for them by outing them, but how, how wrong I knew that was. And how with that perspective, I, I even think of Fred Rogers with this story as a, as a greater person, because it was probably if he had that dual message of for you you're fine but for the greater world they're not ready and how he had to reconcile probably within himself how important it was to help that person be who they were but in private and how great it would be if if being an advocate included adding adding everyone for whoever they are, but how how we have to be aware that keeping them safe is sometimes more important. You know, to segue back to allies for a second, this might work in that context. Thank you, Anne. That's perfect. Because the last thing in the world an ally ever needs to be to to for that to be the right word to describe somebody is in any way leading around in front. That's not appropriate. And there's times when behind is appropriate, like I've got your back. But the best is when you're kind of side by side. And maybe in some ways this was Rogers leaning in a little bit and saying, hey, first, I've got your back. Second, what if we try this? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. And uh, the evil here probably comes from society. So I want to make sure I had enough time to segue into something a little bit more positive. I got my doubts and my frustrations out first. Nicole helped me with that. <laughs> but to me, when I watch a movie... And I'm the worst, my wife will tell you, I'm the worst person to watch a movie with because uh, we could see something really terrible and awful and dreck, and I'm going to drive her nuts by finding the good piece. Or more often, <laughs> more often we go to see the feel-good movie of the summer and it doesn't make me feel good. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a natural critic. I'm born that way. It's part of the reason this show will almost always be serious. But... I look for these, uh, for the, the moments of truth is what I call them. Uh, this is two references to Epiphany in the same show. Uh, the third one, there's prizes for everybody, so I better watch myself. <laughs> but the example that I was kind of using when Nicole and I were bouncing ideas off of it is the movie Seabiscuit. Now, it almost doesn't matter if you've seen the movie, but who's seen the movie Seabiscuit? You know, it was the feel-good movie of its particular summer, you know. Um, and the reason I say it doesn't matter is if you just go to the IMDb page and look at its 7.3 rating and the tagline, you, you know the whole movie. You know, horse is hurt, uh, out of down-on-his-luck jockey, they come together, they save the day, they win the race. Sorry, spoilers. Um, <laughs> or whatever DeBell calls spoilers, I forget. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> but to me, the moment of truth comes very early in the film, so this is not a spoiler. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris Cooper plays the trainer, kind of a grizzled guy. Uh, I love him as a character actor. And at one scene, they're just sitting around a fire, and I think the discussion is whether or not to buy this lame horse and what to do. And Cooper basically says that he's kind of sick and tired of our disposable society, and that what he was raised in a world where if something's broken, you fix it. You don't 
throw it away. Or in this case, you don't kill the horse. And Cooper basically makes an argument that influences the rest of the film, even though he's a minor character in the movie, that they should pursue healing and restoration. So there's a moment in Won't You Be My Neighbor that I consider to be that moment of truth. And you may have to dive in and help me here okay. because <laughs> I, I get emotional. But um, there's a point where Fred Rogers is talking, well, where Daniel Tiger, the character, is singing about being a mistake. So raise your hand if you have never once in your life, and you got to think honestly, go back to childhood, consider whether or not you were a mistake. I'm not going to see any. All of us have had that experience. If only hearing our parents argue when we were eight years old and not being able to process or understand it. And Rogers kind of addressed that issue by putting himself through his puppet character in the shoes. Thank you, sir. In the shoes of, uh, of, the, of the character doubting whether or not he belonged or whether he was wrong. And what Rogers basically said was that for him, evil in this world, evil is telling people that they're mistakes or that they cannot be who they truly are. And the beauty of the documentary, the beauty of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is that he doesn't resolve this. There's no candy-coated happy ending to the segment. When it's over... Uh, Daniel Tiger still has doubts, and the human host is still trying to reassure, because that process of doubting and reinsurance, that process of healing and restoration, doesn't end. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a beautiful. It's he wrote all the songs for the show, and it's a duet, and Daniel Tiger singing his part about doubting himself as the woman is singing you're good you're not a mistake you're beautiful so she's countering everything he's singing and the song ends with them singing together like that and it's I mean, precious and it's true it's a brilliant documentary by the the academy award-winning director of 20 feet from stardom so you're dealing with good high quality work and one day somebody's going to violate the copyright of this particular company and put that scene on youtube and when it does I'll probably cry again. Probably will. <laughs> it's precious. Which is ironic because if you had told me even two, three years ago that, hey, Greg, one day uh, Fred Rogers is going to be a different drummer, I might have laughed out loud. Yeah, I just didn't think that was even possible. But now I'm actually sitting here the other way around wondering if maybe when I raised my kids there wasn't enough Fred Rogers in their, in their upbringing. You know, they're really good with truth. Yeah, but they got you. Well, I'm really good with truth, too. What they need is more Cheryl. They need more people who are better with grace. And I think that where this works is that Rogers kind of made sure that even when the hardest truths are being told, even to a racist nation, he was doing it with one heck of a lot of grace. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a speech. It wasn't a sermon. It wasn't a threat. It wasn't a warning. It was a hose. And it was a towel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Oh, he's so the stupid button. phone has to have a has to have a uh, screen. <laughs> there we are. There it is. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod.
This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.